House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. Donna Kaufman, thank you for being on the show. Thank you. Now, uh, now, Donna, now you you've been around and. Uh, Writing books. How do, well, I know. It's a, for, for, uh, yes, I have. Yeah, so she's, she's been around. Me and the Beach Boys. Oh, oh so you're a Charlie Manson fan. Okay. Uh. <laughs> so now I noticed your book, Final Exams, and um, how did you get to um, working the books with with Cyril, actually? How did, how did that happen? Well, I had been a freelance true crime writer since, the O.J. chase. What happened, is uh, just to back it up uh, before that, I was working on the Arsenio Hall show as a comedy writer. And uh, I, he quit the show. You know, darn it, it was a great gig. Yeah. And so I had to go clean out my office. So I thought before I left the house, because this was the day uh, uh, June 17, 1994, that O.J. was to surrender himself to the police for the murders, uh, suspected murders, of his ex-wife and of her friend. And uh, so I thought, well, that'll be interesting to watch when I come home to unemployment. So I stuck in a, a new video, eight-hour video, and I hit record, and I went, cleaned out my office, and that's the day of the slow-speed chase. Mm -hmm. So uh, when I came home, I watched that and went, oh, my gosh, I have a new career. I want in on that. <laughs> so I contacted friends of mine who were um, with the National Enquirer, uh, and I said, uh, put me on your team. I'm ready for this. I want to do this case. I want to do all true crime, but, you know, this is what uh, I want to begin with. And they said, okay. So I started writing that. And then I, then shortly thereafter, Jean Benet Ramsey and, um, every major true crime case I worked on. And in doing so, I always realized that the epicenter of any true crime is the autopsy. So I uh, began calling Dr. Cyril Wett for uh, assistance in my articles, and he gave me gravitas and put it in uh, plain language that my readers would enjoy and understand. And, uh, and I developed a friendship with him. He was so funny. He is so funny. He still is. By the way, he is the world-renowned uh, forensic pathologist, a.k.a. medical examiner. He has personally performed... 21,000 autopsies. I've only done two. And in both cases, the guys woke up before I could really get going. But anyway, that's, a, that's another story. Uh, so he also has consulted on more than 40,000 other death cases, and he's a lawyer. So nobody has those credentials uh, but Cyrillette. So uh, we started writing books together, and what I am the one who get from all of his 60,000 cases, I choose the ones that are uh, the juiciest and the most twisted. Or the, the, I always make sure there's prosecution and defense 
uh, good arguments on both sides, or you know, he'll he'll work for either side. Uh, you know, he can pick and choose the cases he works on, and I pick and choose the ones to write about. And always making sure that the cause and um, nature of the death is different. So, you know, no two drowning cases in the same book and no two, you know, gunshots and stabbings and all, all the ways that you can die. And um, whether it's suicide or murder or natural, well, who cares about natural, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> come on. I'm not selling books about natural death. I'm not Dr. Oz here. But um, anyway, so we try to make sure that each of the cases has a real interesting cinematic almost uh, descriptions of he has the medical information, and I go back and I get into the heads of the uh, victims and the person who perpetrated the crime, and um, so I, w- together we're like CSI and Criminal Minds. And I think our books each have four to seven cases in each book. So our first one, uh, and some of them are very famous cases, Anna Nicole Smith and her son in the first book, and uh, two um, child murders in San Diego, California, and uh, then there's uh, a great case that he did, um, and this is all Cyril. You know, I, I came into it afterwards. Sometimes I will bring a case to him, uh, or we'll both work on it separately and then come together for the book. Uh, but this was one of his. It was about um, a homicidal doctor during the Katrina out, you know, hurricane. And she ended up killing 32 viable patients and thought she'd get away with it. And, in fact, you know, uh, cut to the end, she did get away with it. Um, She involuntarily euthanized uh, 32 patients. So, anyway, things like that really get us mad. So then our second book uh, is From Crime Scene to Courtroom, and that's about all interesting cases as well Casey Anthony Drew Peterson Michael Jackson um, Brian Jones of the Rolling Stones um, and a couple other cases and our third one is uh, Final Exams True Crime Cases of Cyril Wecht and those are mostly he's based in Pittsburgh so these are so uh, this these are all uh, Pennsylvania centric cases and they're all very interesting. And there's a Canadian element in one uh-oh. of them that, uh, yeah, oh, oh, yeah, shame on you for <laughs> having a, a country that allowed what this, what went on in this case. Oh, uh-oh. you have to read it. It's so sick. Um, but anyway, so <laughs> it really is. It's like one of the worst. Um, so anyway, that that's how we write is, uh, you know, together. And now we're working on a, a book about the uh, Kennedy assassination, which Dr. Wecht has been, from just about the beginning, uh, a vocal critic of the Warren Commission, which was that group of esteemed um, experts who came together to lie on behalf of the government and say that one person um, was responsible for this. Yeah, he was so, working for the House Select Committee on the assassination 
right? Well, he, was... he testified for them. He didn't work on the panel because, well, he he sort of did. You know, they uh, anyway. It's, it's that's all in the book. But uh, he he um, was a critic of them too. Let's just say. You can't pull one over on Dr. Sirowek. You know, he just mm-hmm. knows too much. And uh, he's not afraid to uh, let it rip. Uh, and, uh, you know, mm. our book is getting into all of that. Plus the media uh, perfidy and um, the com- complicity of the media in promoting these BS stories is uh, shameful. It's um, journalistic malpractice. So... Mm. Uh, this book will be sizzling whenever yeah. it comes out. <laughs> and you said that he was, uh, excuse me for interrupting, but you said that he was a really funny guy, and I thought it was interesting that they cast Albert Brooks as him in the movie <laughs> Concussion. Yes, in Concussion, yes. Yeah, yeah we love that. Yeah, we like, love that a lot, and he, he got to meet uh, Albert, and uh, um, yeah, that was a nice little touch. Mm-hmm. I was going to say, um, it must be really frustrating um, when you deal with cases like Casey Anthony, for instance. Um, (laughs) Well, because you kind of know what the truth is from evidence, but yet the court and the media all have different takes, and of course how it comes out is not necessarily how it should be. Yeah. Oh, I tell you, true crime trials, uh, they'll break your heart. You know, I mean, I, I learned that on O.J., the first uh, criminal trial. I mean, you can't imagine how. I went to bed that night saying, we got him. You know, case closed, we got him. And, whoa, who knew? Who knew that a jury that heard evidence for ten months would uh, deliberate for three hours, which included their lunch. <laughs> so they take an hour for lunch during their deliberation. And um, and not ask for anything to be read back or reviewed. They had been sequestered the whole time. They wanted to get home. But the other thing is they saw something fishy, and they picked up on it. So I act- actually agree with the jury. Now that I know the facts about what happened, um, they caught one of the um, cops doing something uh sleazy, and uh, they let O.J. go as a result. But, you know, the civil trial helped to write that, and uh, he's never paid much in the way of the um, financial burden he owes the victim's family. Yeah, yeah. Probably, ne- probably never will. Um, no. Uh, so, you know, what, so what's your thought on the media, then, and how, how it handles this? Um, and do you think that a lot of these trials should be kept from the public until after they're finished? No. Oh, God, no. I love why. I mean, I, I mourn the loss of court TV, which I guess is coming back in some limping way. Uh, but, you know, the whole Casey Anthony trial, I, gavel to gavel. I mean, it was like I was in the courtroom for that. And um, uh, that was just, that's where I just shine. I love that. Uh, you know, I'm not somebody who understands sports. I've never attended a sporting event. But this is as close to sports um, <laughs> yeah. adoration as anyone can get, I think, if you're a, uh, someone who follows the trial. Because, you know, oh, that attorney, and then you start talking about his 
stats and the games yeah. he's played and stuff. And then you owe oh, that judge. Well, <laughs> you know, it's like the umpire that you know. Well, you know, the the players and the everybody has a component that would be similar to a baseball game or something like that. So sometimes, you know, you go, go or sometimes I'm actually in the courtroom for the Scott Peterson trial. I was there for uh, much of it. Um, so it's, it's all very interesting to me. I'm the yeah. same way. I watch the court TV the way most guys watch football, so I understand. Yes, yes. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I love that, especially from a dude. That's wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> no, I love it too. Actually, uh, I could, I can't take my eyes off it when uh, I see, I find a court TV case that's on YouTube or anything. I'll watch the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's great stuff. And when uh, I talked about this in book two, from crime scene to courtroom, when Casey Anthony was uh, found uh, not guilty, I had my windows open and I heard a, a shriek throughout my neighborhood like you know like a bomb dropped i mean it was just uh you know i thought oh i'm really glad i live where i <laughs> i know what these people in fact i probably contributed to it uh so uh that that was kind of a funny moment um in a terrible tragic case well don't but don't you think that um i i, I sort of see how they play to the media but you know, even right back to the O.J. Simpson case, um, how could the judge and the defense and all that really do their job when they're focused on uh, what they're wearing and what people are saying about them? Yeah, yeah. Well, they they have to. I mean, you know, we're going to have more um, cameras in courtrooms as we go forward than fewer. That that right is going to extend to the supreme court one of these days and uh it, we're all the beneficiaries of that happening so you know you just have to deal with it if they play to the cameras well then we'll note it, note that about them uh but um that's Boy, just how, how it has to be, be. Right. <laughs> he's going to be a mess if they're filming him <laughs> Oh, no. I hope he doesn't cry. Well, as long as there's beer, he'll be stable. <laughs> yeah, and beer and whatever. Uh, now, now you were just on that uh, ABC special 2020, and and it was on the Phil Hartman case, who uh, we all we're all familiar with. He was a comedian and um, and had a pretty successful career. Um, how, how did you know the couple? Well, I go back to Phil from um, before my comedy writing days for Arsenio. I was on a bunch of other shows. And uh, as I was working my way up the television production ladder, I co-created the Pee Wee Herman show with uh, Pee Wee. And uh, Phil was the first person we brought in to the cast. And he came up with that song about washing your hands. And he he was Captain Carl, uh, who was um, happier out at sea than he was on land. And um, it it was basically Phil's character. I didn't realize that at the time. So anyway, I got to know Phil very well from that. He was in the Groundlings, as was Paul Rubens. And uh, many of our cast members, if not all, were taken from the Groundlings, which is kind of the primary uh, improv group in Los Angeles, and, you know, they ended ended up 
contributing to the casts of SNL and other um, comedy shows, you know, since the 80s. So we put together this show, and uh, so that's where I got to know Phil very well. And um, I remember being at his house one day, and he said, oh, you know, I got some toys I want to show you. And I thought, okay. So he goes in his bedroom, and he brings out three guns that he sets on the coffee table. And now I wasn't expecting that for toys. I said, no. you know, these are not toys. You're not a cop and you're not in the military and I'm getting creeped out and I'll see you later. And I left uh, because I was inconsistent with the pot-smoking hippie I knew. Uh, and th this is a time when he was still doing art. He was a very fine graphic artist. And, uh, you know, just kind of getting little acting jobs here and there. But, um, you know, that sort of, I tucked that away and, and, uh, we, we still maintained a friendship and we were just, you know, great friends and we would help each other out, you know, on comedy projects and I would get him jobs on, as an announcer on various shows and stuff. So I, um, uh, then I then he joined the cast of SNL and became what Lauren Michaels, the executive producer, called the glue. He was just so transforming in the many many characters he could do and the voices he could do. And one of the things they show in the ABC special is uh, his audition tape, which is hilarious. I won't mm -hmm. blow the joke, but go to yeah. YouTube and look at Phil Hartman. <laughs> SNL audition, and it's just it's just the best. So you could see why he got hired. And uh, shortly thereafter, uh, I joined the um, SNL writing staff, and so I got to know him. By that time, he was married to wife number three, who was Bryn. So I got to know her on that uh, in New York, and then. Uh, I finished with SNL and I moved back because I was just staying in a hotel while I was on SNL, flying in and out for the shows. And um, then I moved back to L.A. and took another job. And then he ended up doing one more season at SNL and then he and Bryn, and by now they had two little children, moved back to um, Los Angeles where they had a lovely home. And... Um, so I got to know them there, and then later he joined the cast of News Radio, which was a sitcom on NBC. NBC basically wrote him a check and said, whatever you want to do, prime time, because Phil wanted prime time. He did not want to be on late night money, because uh, there's a big difference between uh, late night and prime time. Mm -hmm. So he was also getting movie roles, and he was on The Simpsons, which uh, tapes out in Los Angeles. So he needed to be in L.A. And um, so uh, he wanted me to develop a uh, show for NBC for him. And Bryn had been promised from the beginning. Uh, she was trying to be an actress. She was an exquisitely beautiful model. Um, when he first met her, she was an underwear model and um, swimsuit model. So he fell in love with you know this having this woman on his um, at his side on the red carpets. He just loved the fact that you know he had this 
fantastic-looking specimen of humanity next to him. And um, But, you know, she always made it clear that she wanted to be an actress. And he said, stick with me, baby, I'll help you get roles. And he never did that. And, in fact, he purposely um, lost roles for her. He would undermine her at every opportunity. And she got very depressed and started going back to bad habits she had before she met Phil, which was cocaine and alcohol. And she had been in and out of rehab a couple of times. I didn't know any of that when uh, I first met her in, in New York. Um, and But, you know, I liked her a lot, and I thought she had potential as an actress. So when I spoke to Phil about the kind of show he wanted to create for NBC, uh, he said, well, you know, sort of base it on the Jack Benny show, which was an old black-and-white sitcom of the 60s, where Jack played different characters, and his wife was on the show for a while, and uh, it was their home life and his professional life, and it was just surreal. It's still on in uh, repeats on television. If you have Antenna TV, they air the, the show's. And they are the trippiest sitcom. That they, the humor holds up to this day. It's just wonderful stuff with, you know, big stars coming in each week and um, just the craziest writing in the world. So we were on the same page in terms of creating that kind of a show, and he liked what I was putting together. And then all of a sudden he said, oh, you know, I'm going to take this job on news radio. I can't do it. Uh, I can't do our own show. And it was like, oh, well, thanks. <laughs> and then, uh, you know, also, Bryn came to me and said, that's because he doesn't want to work with me. And I said, oh, come on, that's not, that can't be true. And she said, no, it's true. Then she wrote a script with a friend and said, here's the script, Phil. Um, would you give it to your agent and maybe he could sell it? He, he, he reads the script. He said, no, this is trash. I'm not going to give it to my agent. Well, I'm sorry, agents read bad things all the time. I don't know whether it was bad or not, but the point is Phil did not want her to be out of the home. He wanted her in the home taking care of the kids, and that was not what he promised her when she joined his escapade. So I felt really bad for her, and uh, and I thought it was not fair. Um, and I say this as, as Phil's biggest fan. I really liked him, but one of the points the ABC show makes is that he was a distant guy. Uh, he would rather be on his boat or, um, you know, in his plane. He did not take, um, let's have a talk, and he did not look at that as, oh, great, an invitation to clear the air. No, he would go into his shell and ignore everyone, and usually that meant Bryn. So she could not get him to engage in any dialogue, and uh, it was very frustrating for her. And um, so that was that was happening at that at that time, and it was sad. So anyway, cut to the chase is in May of '98, May 28, '98, in a cocaine alcohol fueled frenzy. She shot him while he was sleeping in bed, two, head, two shots to the head and one to the uh, chest, and killed him, then went to a friend's house and said, I did this, and he came back and 
verified that she that he was dead, called the police, and and then she locked the door and uh, the cops came, flooded the house. Instead of calling a because they knew she was in the room and she had a gun in that room. A gun but by the way, she had just turned forty the month before and for her birthday Phil gave her a gun. So that was a gun that she put in her mouth and pulled the trigger. So the cops had been all over that house. And when I was, uh, I happened to be watching the news that morning. It was after six in the morning, and there, the first report said there's a homicide at Phil Hartman's house. And because I remember he was a gun person, I called my friend who also knew him, and I said, "Oh my God, he killed her! I can't believe it." Well, then more info came out, and we learned what really happened. But um, when she was in that bedroom, uh, and there was no saving Phil because they had already confirmed that uh, he was dead, they should have gotten a, a hostage negotiator, preferably a female there, to talk her down and tell her about her children. And, you know, they're out of the house now, but they're they're still in your life, you know, Come out, let us help you. Instead, the cops gave the order like a SWAT team and broke through the window of her bedroom where she was laying next to Phil's dead body, and it scared her, and that's when she shot herself. So I will always hold those cops to blame because she should have gone to trial. She should have been convicted she should have gotten a sentence with some mitigation for the extreme mental anguish that he put her through for 20 years. And um, not quite 20, but, you know, long enough. By the time we got to trial, it would have been, you know, uh, that long. Um, and she should be out and uh, being a grandmother to her children. Uh, instead, they're orphans. And the kids were... Uh, taken in and adopted by her sister and her husband, who just did a remarkably great job in raising these lovely children, and um, they live in the Midwest, and, and they're adults now, 31 and 27, and uh, they live very well. So the, the, for the first time, her brother also spoke to ABC, and uh, that's a very interesting interview. So, yeah, that, anyway, sort of, you can jump in here anytime. Yeah, I just, <laughs> I just uh, that's good to get the premise. I'm just sort of surprised. Um, I always thought um, they were happy together. I didn't realize that he, like you were saying, he's kind of uh, um, abusive to her. I guess mentally. Um, yeah. Um, so when oh, and he would he would you know here's a woman that he met because she was a swimsuit model and perfect looking. And then as soon as they got married, you know, he was like saying, you know, you're looking old. Maybe you need plastic surgery. And she would run to a plastic surgeon and have multiple surgeries. So he was always undermining her um, and picking on her looks, which was absurd. Um, so that's another thing that, you know, was just why, 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 why? But... Um, well, you know, it, you so, can't take away his talent except as a husband. Yeah. Oh, so why is it that you think that she um, ended up shooting him? Was it just 
from years of this type of treatment? She had uh, almost a double um, blood alcohol uh, content, and she had cocaine, not a lot of it, but a little cocaine in her system. And she was on Zoloft, which was an antidepressant, which was prescribed to her. It was in a therapeutic amount. But pretty much you look at the label, it says, do not mix with alcohol and cocaine, Bryn. And, uh, you know, so her brother... She was in and out of recovery, too, was she not? Yes, she was, uh, and she was, you know, he wanted her to go back. And uh, she she just was really, really depressed. And, um, you know, he, he didn't know what to do, but, you know, he didn't understand why she just couldn't pick herself up and go on. I mean, they had help with the kids. You know, they had nannies and housekeepers and all that, so she had a pretty sweet life. But everything but the thing that she wanted, which was to be creative. And and so when you mentioned that um, he took out guns, you know, years previously and showed you his toys, what w- what do you think he was trying to represent to you? Well, I think he was letting me know that he's he's a guy who likes guns. I mean, he's a guy who had uh, had an airplane. He had two boats when I knew him. Uh, he was a guy who liked sports cars, Ferraris and Porsches, and, you know, um, he just he just thought of guns as more toys. He wanted me to go to a shooting range with him, and I just refused. Uh, I, I'm not from that culture. I'm from San Francisco. We don't do that. You know, we're, uh, um, we're just not... That I, I don't know where he developed his love of guns, but um, it turned me off. And and I, uh, you know, I'm I'm not saying that they were AR-15s or you know, yeah, Kalashnikovs or anything like that. Yeah. But um, they were uh, something I had never seen. No, I had never been to a house where somebody said, "Hey, look at these toys," and you know, let's take them apart and clean them and play with them. And I thought. Nope, <laughs> not yeah. me. No, me. No, did, did you think Bryn was into it, or was she a collector? You know, of that's guns a good or? question. I would have uh, loved to know. He said that he took her. Uh, he said not to me, but to other people that they would go to a gun range so she knew how to use a gun, and uh, and that was. For, he said I bought her a gun on her fortieth birthday for protection because I'm gone all the time. Well, they lived in a very. Uh, not a private community, but a wealthy community. So uh, I don't know who they were being protected from. Um, you know, I just think it was part of his life and maybe hers. I mean, she was from uh, Minnesota, so maybe there's hunting in her family. I, I don't know. Maybe she was somebody who was raised around guns. I'm not sure. But the gun that he gave her for her 40th uh, is the one that she used um, on herself. And uh, another gun of his, probably one of the ones he showed me as a toy, was the one she used on him, a 38. Now, he said that he had, in the special that I watched last night, he said that he had been the victim of an extortion attempt and some other things. Do you think that was part of the reason he felt he needed a gun? No. I think no, because when I when he had the guns that he showed me, that was 
20 years before or 15 years or something like that. So I think that he just had guns in his life as a regular course. And, um, you know, I mean, uh, people own guns. I know that, you know. So, uh, but uh, I think it was just part of his life. There is a story about uh, Bryn and cocaine and Andy Dick. Do you you have any familiarity with that? Yeah, yeah. Um, Andy, uh, at some point, at uh, on uh, I, they were on news radio. He was on news radio at the time, mm-hmm. and they were at a, a Christmas party at um, Phil's home. And uh, and he said to Bryn, "Hey, I got some cocaine. You want some? Yes, I do." So he gave her some, and then. Phil found out about it, and also John Lovitz found out about it, and were furious at Andy for giving her cocaine. Well, he didn't know about her background of being in and out of rehab. He just thought, hey, I, I'm going to have a little bump. But would you like one? You know, happy Christmas. It could be an eggnog, but it's not. Um, and uh, I remember being on uh, SNL in the ladies' room, walking in, and there she is, you know, taking cocaine, and she offered me some, and 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 I thought, well, you know, I mean, this is. I never thought, oh, she's got a problem. Never, that never occurred to me because I didn't know her rehab um, background or I didn't know her addictions. If I had, I probably would have said something to him. But um, so I, I think that Andy just, you know, did that, and then. Later, after she died, John Lovitz got into his mind that that action of 10 months previous was what set the path for Bryn, and she wouldn't have had anything else in her mind when she killed Phil except um, wanting to uh, avenge, um, you know, the fact that he was sending her back to rehab again. And... uh, that's just crazy. I mean, I was the night that Phil and Bryn died. I was at uh, John Lovitz's house. He had a few people over, and he was really angry about that. Uh, and and I kept thinking, you know, it really does. I I don't see I don't see the connection. But at some point, he he actually tried to have a fight with a physical fight with. Uh, uh, Andy and um, I don't know why he just fixated on that having some relevance and ignored everything else. People in show business tend to only see the loss of Phil as you know the be all end all, and because you know he was so important to show business and he was, but you know there there were two people here that uh, left two little children. And uh, this whole thing was a tragedy from all directions. Yeah. Well, I have a question for you. Um, I, I noticed that in the documentary, they talked about how Bryn's brother tried to sue the Pfizer Corporation over how they claimed that the Zoloft had affected her. But also right. in the documentary, there were people who said that Phil Hartman told them long before that that she was violent towards him and would hit him and throw things at him. So I think the attempt to find an explanation, you know, we're probably never going to know exactly why. 
but it sounds like there's more to it than just she was on Zoloft or she was on cocaine or whatever that particular night. Yeah, she had anger issues that I hadn't known about. She never displayed anything like that when I was in her presence. Uh, but she did to other people, and Lisa, Phil's second wife, yeah, said that yeah. she sent her a violent letter. But Lisa has said direct quotes. Last night she said it was a two-page letter. Before she said it was a four-page letter. Um, so I don't know. Um, and she said that Phil, when she talked to Phil about it, <clears throat> he said, well, you should have seen the letter she was going to send you. Like it was even Which worse I than think, that one. Yeah. I mean, um, then if, in, in that case, why didn't Phil say, hey, I'll take this to the post office for you and then, you know, rip up the letter? Was there a part of him that enjoyed seeing th these two wives at war? That was what occurred to me. Is that, you know he, he was sort of enjoying that cat fight, uh, encouraging it, uh, and he was seeing his ex-wife as a friend at the time, yeah, hiding it. That's from what friends. she says. Yeah, um, yeah, and that he was parking around the block, and you know. I, I really don't think that Phil had any female friends. Maybe, you know, he did continue a, a friendly relationship with her. Maybe that was of some comfort. Um, and, you know, did 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 she, was Bryn abusive toward him physically? Probably, you know. You could not get Phil's attention unless you um, were pretty bold. You know, Phil just wasn't going to talk to people. He just didn't engage. It, Lisa tells a story that on Valentine's Day, she bought some sexy uh, lingerie uh, when they were married and danced around it, and, and he just said, oh, really? Come on. And uh, so she took it off and put it back in the box and w went and read a book. Uh, you know, there was nothing that you could say to get Phil to engage in any way. So I mean, you know, this was this was the problem he had with women. With I guess it must have happened with his first wife as well. She's never been uh, public, um, but it wasn't easy being uh, Phil's uh, wife. Mm -hmm. And you know, he he had he had to read scripts. He had to do meetings. He had a, he was away on sets. He was building his career. Um, all of which is fine. You know, there's one thing, uh, if you remember the opening credits for SNL when Phil was on it, he's at a diner and sitting next to him is a blonde and you see her earring going back and forth. You don't yeah. see her face. Yeah. That was Bryn. And Phil could have said to the director, hey, put the camera over there so you get her beautiful face in this too. But he didn't. Um, you know, so she's in every episode, but you never see her face. Mm. So for somebody who could have helped her acting career, uh, he didn't do that. In the show last night, one of his friends said that he had said repeatedly that he did not think she was a good actor. And yeah, yeah. maybe he was trying to prevent her from embarrassing him, or at least in his eyes. But I think well, it's interesting I don't know that, that she would embarrass. She was fine. Uh, I yeah. I worked with her 
Uh, and I, I think the reason that she enjoyed working with females is because we didn't have that that thing like, oh, okay, you say she's no good, okay, fine, I'll, I'll trust what Phil says, he's the master. No, I, I, I could tell you she was as good as any other actress that I could have worked with in a sketch comedy kind of role. So um, that was unfair. That I think he just didn't want the competition. Mm-hmm. You know, she got very depressed because they would be on the red carpet and um, everyone would just look through her and talk to Phil. And in the ABC special, it shows one time where he spells her name out and like, oh God, he just threw her a bone. But, um, you know, that's not the same thing as having, you know, he had management. He had, he really, he was in the catbird seat with producers, directors, writers, agents, managers, um, you know, studio heads. He could have done anything to say, hey, give her, you know, throw her a bone here, do something for me, give my wife a job. And he purposely said, don't hire my wife. I mean, no wonder she was mad. Not excusing her behavior, but I'm saying, you know, she went into this relationship with that promise that he would help her, and then he did everything to, you know, oh, honey, your face looks really round. Maybe you should do something about that and should run and get more plastic surgery. Hmm. So... Uh what, well, what do you what do you hope people come come away with when they uh, see the special and when they hear about the the Phil Hartman case? Well, I have one goal when I do these shows, which is I hope one day the kids hear what I say, because I want them to know that she was a loving mom, and that both parents were loving. They did love. You know, Phil wasn't around much, but when he was, he was great, creative person and she was as well and that they have directly inherited some of their very best traits and um, that this was a you know horrendous episode that happened one day we all wish we could turn back um, but you know they were good people the mom was a good person and and um, you know they didn't do this out of hatred she was in an altered state. And just before she killed herself, she didn't she call her sister to ask her to take care of the children? Yes. That is that was a lucky thing that she did that because the guy who went back to the house with her to to assert that Phil was dead had the gun that she used on Phil in his he took it away when it fell out of uh, her purse at his home. He grabbed the gun, put it uh, aside, and gave it to the police. So his handprints were all over that gun. If she didn't establish those phone calls to her sister and others, uh, he would have been the suspect. Yeah. I, I thought about that last night when he's on the phone. Ron Douglas was his name when he was Ron on the Douglas, phone. Ron Douglas, yeah. Say, exactly. where is the gun? And he says, it's in my hand. And, like, that doesn't seem like the smartest thing to be doing. But Yeah, yeah. yes. Well, uh, she opened her purse and fell out and he grabbed it so uh but he at that point he still thought that she was full of uh, beans that oh you didn't really kill phil come on 
I'm taking my car, you take your car, we'll go back over there and see what's what. And then, you know, uh, he saw that Phil was dead, he left the room to go call the police, and she locked the door and uh, stayed in that bedroom until the cops broke the window, and she, and then we heard the gunshot. By the way, when there were so many cops there, way more than they needed, it was like the, and, and thank God this was before cell phone cameras because they'd be all these cops would be posing with the corpses um I, no i'm not kidding there were at least 30 cops there they were calling friends cop friends and saying hey come on over look at this uh and meanwhile the coroner's office calls the lead uh detective and says is there something we should know over there we're hearing rumors that you you may have a couple of dead bodies oh yeah well, we're going to call you this was five hours later. They didn't. They were too busy, you know, gawking and calling their buddies to come look, than to call the coroner and say, uh, you know, come and, you know, uh, look at the scene and take these bodies. So, which eventually happened, but um, you know, it was just yeah. was bad police. Uh, and I'm a, a huge proponent of. LAPD and uh, the work they do, all cops. But this was not kosher. No, mm. no, not a good thing. It's been a real pleasure having you on, and, and uh, your work is fantastic. And our guest has been uh, Donna Kaufman. Thank you for being here, Donna. Thank you, guys. I appreciate this. To find out more about our show, guests, or to listen to past shows from our archive, please go to www.houseofmysteryradio.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.